This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is Barry Blavelt, founder and CEO of Innovara, a healthcare consulting company and management training company. Few people around the world have as much experience with her in healthcare. She's held executive positions, she's a first-rate researcher, and she has some great observations, unique observations, on our healthcare system today. What's wrong with it? Why aren't there more women in high executive positions online with healthcare companies? In a moment, we'll have our conversation with Barry, but first, what's ahead? Well, of course, it's impeachment, but at the end of the day, Donald Trump will still be in the White House. USMCA, looks like Congress will finally approve that, the US-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, very important. Combined trade with those two countries, $1.4 trillion, almost twice as much as we do with China. Now in the following week, we're gonna get an Unemployment Insurance Weekly Claims Report on Thursday. Why is this important? Because last week it went up at the fastest pace in almost two years. Is this a sign of trouble or just a one-week blip? On the 17th, Wednesday, we're gonna get housing starts. How's that industry doing with these low mortgage interest rates? On Thursday, we're gonna get a petroleum report. Inventories there have been very much higher than anticipated, been very bad for oil companies in terms of uh, what their prices that they can get for their product, but so far good for the consumer. Now, our conversation with Barry Blavelt. Our special guest today is Barry Blauvelt. She's CEO of Innovera, which is an international training firm, highly customized training, business services, coming up with the latest and future trends in healthcare. Worldwide clients, names you all recognize. Barry, give us some of the names of your clients. Roche, Novartis, Pfizer, some of the international firms, Samsung, Takeda, Daiichi, at least 50% of the top 50 companies in the world. Barry Blauvelt, welcome here today as our special guest. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. It's really an honor. So today we're going to discuss with Barry several general areas, U.S. healthcare, women in the healthcare industry, what she sees overseas. But before we begin, give us your two-year-old rule on how you get information. Share that with us. Oh, it's a, it's a great story. For those of you who've ever seen the movie Philadelphia, there's the pivotal moment in the movie where the lawyer, Denzel Washington, is defending the, um, well, actually, he's they're suing a big firm for the first unlawful termination of a, of a person who, who has HIV. And this was a landmark case. And he's about to lose the case. And he's in front of the jury, and he looks at, he's got this head of HR, and he realizes, he looks at the jury, and they're all nodding, like this guy is really polished, and they have no idea what he's saying, and defending why they terminated him. So he says, let me ask the two-year-old question here. Could you just explain this as though I were two years old? On what basis did you fire this guy? <laughs> and with, with that, all the jury went, right, why did you fire him? And that was the turning point of the case. And ever since then, I've been fearless in asking those dumb idiot questions, those two-year-old questions, when just something doesn't make sense. And it's just amazing what that uncovers. 
We'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, first, uh, your background. How did you get into the healthcare industry? You went to a experimental college called Hampshire College. You got an MBA at Columbia. Then in 2017, only two years ago, you got your master's of public health from the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. How did you get into public health and uh, walk us through your journey? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I'll give you the cliff note version. I am an international person. I grew up in different countries with different languages. And when I came to this country, um, I had to learn the American accent. First of all, that was quite a challenge. Because you wouldn't learn that in places like Hong Kong and France where you uh, grew up. No, I learned proper English. <laughs> uh, and um, some, some Brits can't get over 1776 yet, but right. anyway. And I went to college very young. And Hampshire was a new college, and it appealed to me. And believe it or not, I was an electronic music major. I was going to study physics of music and synthesize sound so I could write for orchestras. I was a music major. Got to Hampshire. Which also meant you're good at math. I'm not bad at math. And uh, Hampshire was one of two colleges that would have their first electronic studios. And the day I joined Hampshire went first day of school, first day of the college, opening, a van rolled in and stole all the equipment, and there went my major. So I had to do something until they could replace it. So I ended up studying law, and they had a pre-law program and fell in love with it. Flash forward, I eventually, when I graduated, got a, a job with a big law firm in New York City. One of my biggest clients was Pfizer. They sent me to Columbia for my joint degree, not Pfizer, sorry, the law firm, for my joint MBA JD, because all the partners did that. And when I was there, one of my professors became the CFO of Pfizer. And he liked me, and, the, and I was a marketing major. And he was asked to recommend marketing students. And one thing led to another, and the law firm traded me to Pfizer. I joined Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. I couldn't even say Pfizer. It was like Pfizer. And I didn't know anything about pharmaceuticals. And uh, I guess that was part of that, that whole journey of, you know, being excited to learn something I knew nothing about. And from there, I helped them to launch the cardiovascular business. And then I was recruited at a very young age to head up all of Asia for another pharmaceutical company. And so at the age of 28, I was responsible for 28, pharma 28 countries of Asia which was unheard of in the industry. And I grew that business several fold within a few years. You uh, had this experience with Pfizer. And then, uh, so how did Innovera come along? Well, I always loved teaching. From the time I was little, I would volunteer to teach after school programs and things like that. I always loved teaching. When I got to American Cyanamide Company and was running those countries overseas, I realized that there was really no good business training and marketing training for my people. University professors in Asia, for example, would get paid by the hour to lecture, and that's all they would do. And there was no experiential learning, and it certainly didn't relate to the healthcare industry that they were in. So I decided that um, I would teach my own people. And then my husband got transferred to Malaysia with his company, American Express. He became a VP for American Express. And... Um, it required me to quit or really take a sabbatical for two years. So I couldn't just twiddle my thumbs. 
So I had already been a guest lecturer at the Columbia Business School, and I'd already actually been accepted for a PhD at Columbia Business School to go back to get a PhD. All that had to be put to the side. And I said, well, Cyanamid agreed to keep me on benefits and things like that as long as I wouldn't work for competition. So I had nothing to lose. So I said, but I can't do nothing. Can I teach? They said, sure. And that was the beginning of Innovara. So I formed Innovara and began offering my services to the pharmaceutical industry in Asia. And to this day, we're probably the best known company in Asia for training and development. And then, interestingly, in 2006, Glaxo, one of my clients, the head of Asia had been a very close client of mine, and his name was Andrew Witte, and he became the CEO. Right. And they were about to launch their first drug in cancer, and that's one of my specialties, is cancer. That and hepatitis? And hepatitis. And, well, hepatitis leads to cancer, so it, I sort of backdoored that. But anyway, Andrew asked his group to... Now, consult- Sir Andrew, by the way. Sir Andrew, sorry. Sir Andrew, you're right. He asked me, to, he asked his people to ask me to help them bring the first cancer drug they would have to market in the emerging markets of the world, the developing world. And he said, so we don't have a big portfolio. We can't spend the kind of money Roche and Novartis are used to spending. So what should we do? I go, I have no idea. I have no idea. The two-year-old question, what should we do? Let's go ask the doctors in all these countries. And that led ultimately to my uncovering that there's ethnicity in breast cancer. And up to that point, you have to understand, nobody thought about ethnicity in, in cancer, you know. And we made the cover of Time magazine. We made every medical conference. Um, and that research was done under IRB, which is Institutional Review Board, under the auspices of a university, because I felt intuitively that our findings of this research could be publishable, could be important. And there was no downside. You know, what's the worst? I find out that there's nothing they can do to differentiate themselves. That got me invited to join the U.S. president's cancer panel, for um, which decided to focus on ethnicity of cancer. And I was a main contributing author to that, not just for breast cancer, but all cancers. And that propelled me to fame, as it were. And um, all the scientists and everybody that said there's no such thing as ethnicity of cancer spent seven years trying to disprove me and only to have the NIH turn around and say, guess what, there's ethnicity in cancer. Why is it that you say younger women in Asia, Latin America, Middle East, and Africa die of breast cancer at much younger ages than they do in women do in the U.S. and Europe? What, what do you think that's all about? Well, we don't even to this day really understand the answer to that question. Um, it goes back to that original research that we did, and, uh, and, and you have to then ask yourself, you have to rule out certain things. So is it genetics? And in some cases, there are what I call wicked genes in certain populations. We know about the BRCA1 and 2 genes that came out of research done in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. Um, so certainly, ethnicity, we look for genes 
within a high population risk group, is there a, a mutation that is common to them? The second screen is culture. Is there something about their lifestyle that presents? And so, for example, in Taiwan um, and China, we see very high rates of cancer because of cups of noodles. And you wouldn't believe this, but it took five years to figure this one out. The plastic cups of noodles, and they actually have hot drinks in plastic bags and bottles— Um, When you pour hot water in those plastic bowls, it leaches what are called xenocarcinogens. These are plastic chemicals that are highly carcinogenic and have an affinity to estrogen, which results in breast cancers and ovarian cancers, but particularly breast cancer. And um, and here's the here's the horrific news. Um, The bowls of noodles we get in this country largely are made in China, all of that stuff. And it's not restricted because it comes as a finished product and FDA doesn't control it. And so what we're now seeing in this country is younger people, because now this is the most popular thing in college kids, right? We're going to, my prediction is we're going to see a rise in breast cancer, triple negative breast cancers in younger people. And that those data have been published by and led that research was led by a, a fantastic Dr. An Li Chang, who's now head of the NCCI Hospital Center for um, the Government of Taiwan in Taipei. Is CDC Centers for Disease Control of the FDA publicizing this yet? They don't even know it. They're not even aware of it because then they, they, they you can't imagine how powerful the. Chinese food lobbies are. I mean, they they don't want these. I was told to wear a bulletproof vest at one point when I began talking about these data. It's scary. It's scary. And then we see things like colon cancer in this country. Well, so that's the breast cancer. So it's like a cold. We can't assume that there's only one cause of a cold. And so you really have to look at high-risk populations. And that's why we do ethnic research. Um, the last factor is environmental. And so, you know, we look for things like, you know, a tribe in Yemen where the women were getting breast cancer between the ages of 16 and, and 26 and dying off. Um, and that tribe is dying away, literally. And research that was supported and, and done by University of Toronto discovered that um, they're in a tribal area. Their hill area is where there's nuclear waste dumping. So you really have to, it's not one reason. Right, right. Um. Another intriguing one of your findings, two-year-old findings, why does Egypt have the highest rate of hepatitis C in the world, while the prevalence of hepatitis B, C, and liver cancer in the rest of of the African continent is unknown? Well, now it's known because we mapped it. (laughs) But it was just interesting at the time, here's Egypt with this huge rate of hepatitis C, and everybody, CDC, WHO, studying it, and nobody was asking the two-year-old question, what about the neighboring countries or what about the rest of the African continent, right? Well, it's what we call horizontal transmission. So, you know, let's face it, you, you know, Egyptians, you don't have a country of needle, you know, druggies <laughs> sharing dirty needles. You have mother-to-child transmission, and it's called horizontal transmission. So hepatitis is passed. Most hepatitis B and C is passed from mother-to-child at birth. And and that's and Egypt has just had this, and we can have a whole nother discussion another time 
why Egypt and the developing world has the highest rates of hepatitis and the Western world doesn't. And that's a, a discussion for another time. But, um, but that has um, really been an eye-opener. So, and in other countries, we see hepatitis B. In general, in Africa, it's about two-thirds hepatitis C, three-thirds, um, uh, sorry, two-fifths two hepatitis C and three-fifths um, hepatitis B transmission. So you're not going to share with us any... Uh preliminary theories you have on why in terms of the uh, hepat going back to the hepatitis yeah i think it came from the beginning of um the days of vaccination where dirty you know just think about the military and school children would be lined up and you'd go stab 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 with the same needles again and again and again and you were given a 10 cc vial you know about a two tablespoon vial and, you know, you would fill up this big syringe and the nurses would just line up the children in school because we see, a, we see when we look at epidemiology, we see a huge rise in some data between the ages of 5 to 10. So when kids enter school, which is typically when they get the second rounds of big vitamin uh, vaccines. And so we think that early dirt, use of dirty needles by the medical profession and through vaccination was a leading cause of that. And where did that happen most? was in the developing world, an underdeveloped world. Women in India, mm -hmm. cervical cancer, mm -hmm. highest in the world. Yep. They're vaccinated for HPV, hepatitis, by the age of 35. Actually, that's well, not hepatitis. It's um, human, papillo okay. human papilloma virus. And that's the virus that, if it's unchecked, can lead to cancers, cervical cancer. So why is that? Yes. Why does the country say you, have to, you can't be vaccinated before the age of 35? Yes. It's not the country saying it, it's the society saying it. And what happened when they launched and they said you have to vaccinate children, girls, before they become pregnant, before they start engaging in sexual conduct. But there are cases where the vaccines cause sterility. And when you're contracting a daughter to get married, you, that decision goes to the man who's going to marry the girl whenever that contract or that decision is made or by the father. And they don't want to allow a vaccination to be given to a girl. So they want the women to be able to have the babies they're going to have before they get vaccinated, which is really letting the horse out of the gate here. And that's why that happens. And uh, uh, this then gets to uh, a study that uh, you helped co-author. Yes. Coming out. Healthcare industry not close to achieving gender parity among executive leaders, which gets to a peculiar aspect of U.S. medical history. Back in the uh, uh, early 1900s, when uh, medicine in this country was pretty primitive, the schools, anyone could call themselves a medical school. They had a big reform in around 1910, mm -hmm. accreditation, proper curriculum, and all of that. One of the things they did that uh, was going backwards was they discriminated against women becoming doctors. They told the medical schools, this is for men, only a handful of women. So uh, today... You can, if you're a woman, become a physician, been able to do that with fewer fewer restrictions over time. 
but on this industry, which uh, covers 10 sectors, and I'm just going to read these sectors off because people don't realize how complex this industry is. Correct. There's five manufacturers, pharmaceuticals, biotech, generics, diagnostic equipment, devices, five services, health insurers, health systems, hospitals, hospital systems, PBMs, uh, retail, specialty, pharmacy. So uh, this study, walk us through the study and the findings, uh, the shocking findings that having women on the board of directors does nothing. It's got to be far, far deeper. Walk us through some of these surprising things you found. Well, again, this came out of six, six dumb questions. Started with one dumb question. Where are the women in leadership today in the healthcare industry? And you would think that that has been well documented. And in fact, McKinsey does something called Women in the Workplace. They do an annual study since 2015, but it's very high level and it's survey driven. And it tends to be based on um, more focus on manufacturing industry rather than the health sector services sectors. I wanted to have, and this really came out of Columbia Mailman School of Public Health, I'd have to say, I wanted to understand where women were across the entire spectrum of industry, not just Pharmaceutical companies, which, you know, usually get these kinds of data. Uh, I also found when I started digging that, yes, we might have some inkling that in pharma it was 20%, one out of five executive uh, C-suite leaders were women. Uh, but we didn't know their functions. Were they CEOs or, you know, very few CEOs? Uh, but if they weren't CEOs, what were they doing in the executive leadership area? So didn't have answers to that. Very simple question. Third one was this, well, if you have more women on the board, you'll have more women in leadership. This myth this of the halo effect, I call it. And I said, it, where are the data? I'm a data person, as you sort of said. <laughs> I love to do my deep dives and research, and I couldn't find any data to support that. Then you hear all about California and you hear Europe and everything. You've got to have at least 30% women on the board because one study showed that that improves financial performance that was one done with the, One of the points made in the study, yes, uh, publicly listed companies from the UK and Europe here have 30%. Correct. But when you look at the leadership, they're there. They're the same with us. Yes. They're the same with us. There's, there's about, you know, 17, 18% overall um, leadership in executive, in boards, in boards. Uh, well, sorry, there's about 34% women on boards of the top healthcare companies publicly traded in Europe, but only uh, 17, 18% women in executive leadership. And those same companies, when we look at the uh, healthcare industry. Well, you make the point, they're the same names. And they're the same names. Those women on the boards are the same people. It's not unusual to see those names five, six, seven times. I mean, I really dug deep. <laughs> I really dug deep. So, you know, and, and the executive leadership roles, are th those are the feeders to these boards. Those are the feeders. So, so if you're, you don't have a lot of line leaders, and that's a key finding of the study. If you don't have a lot of women in line functions in the companies, you're not going to have the quality of, people that you need for the boards to be on boards. They don't need PR people on boards. They don't need HR people on boards. They need finance and operations people on boards. And if women are not in those roles, and they're not in those roles, we, we, we're in trouble. So uh, you uh, do the study, and uh, you had some interesting uh, findings. You mentioned 
women executive leaders hold twice as many staff roles, 36%, as line roles. Staff is nice, but it's not the way to... Correct. Uh, they don't have decision-making power. And for people that don't understand what sta sta staff and line mean, line means you control the money, you control the decisions made about the corporation. You're that running affected. things. You're running things, and it affects, directly affects the performance of the firm. Staff are those that support the line, so the the R's, the human resources, the public relations, et cetera. Human HR is the only one that has a majority of women. That's it. And that was predictable, right? I, yes. I say, what do, what do you think, which function do you think women rock at? And it's HR. And um, what isn't in the published study this time, because we're going to go back and do some more research on it, is I actually personally validated women of color. And our findings were 4% less than 4%, 3.88, uh, were women of color. And I could be wrong on some of those numbers, but we're dealing with very finite, small numbers. Um, the vast majority of those women are in heads of HR. So what must be done? You make the point about difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Absolutely. So how many... So one tell of the, us about that. One of the questions we've asked a lot of... Um, Leaders, women leaders who have gotten there, and we talk about have you had a mentor or not, many of them, most of the older women said, no, I never had a mentor. And then we asked the younger women, they said, yeah, I've had mentorship, but that isn't as important as sponsorship. And sponsorship, mentorship is someone like you helping someone younger to learn from your experience and wisdom and, and not learn by trial and error quite so much. Have That's to great. Not, not have to reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel or be able to understand when a different approach may be needed even from the past. Sponsorship is your willingness to back somebody, your willingness to recommend somebody for those jobs. And one of the challenges is that a lot of women don't have the visibility of leadership. And therefore, when there's a critical opening, they don't come to mind or they're not known. So sponsorship is a really a proactive search. Who can we get instead of waiting for somebody to s surface? Which And then putting them forth. And when I was talking to David Epstein, he said, you know, there were times I was offered jobs. I knew I wasn't ready for them, but I knew I would learn on the job and I would learn by doing it. This gets to something about maybe the <clears throat> psychology. Linda Gates points this out, a study that terms of applying for a job, uh, moving up, a woman feels when she looks at the criteria, got to be 100%. Correct. A guy looks at it and says, 60%, eh, I'm going to go for it anyway. Absolutely. And we've heard that again and again. When I talk to the younger women who are definitely the rising stars, they're so savvy. You know, they, they, they know they need more than mentorship and sponsorship, but they still hold back. And Adele Golfo, who's number two at Royvent and was number two at Milan and one of the top leaders at Pfizer, she said, we get in our own way. We have to learn to get out of our own way, <laughs> you know, stop ourselves from thinking we can't do something and, and get out there and try it. And I think another important thing is what I call a T profile. So women who are excellent, we pride ourselves at having deep expertise, whether it's learning and development on a global level or science or medicine or patient care. Um, but the true leaders to succeed, you've got to have that T profile. So you have the leg of the T, right? The stem of the T, which is the deep 
expertise, but then you've got to have the top of the T, which allows you to understand and work across all functions and be able to relate to those functions. And for that, you need different experiences. So if you came from the bench and science, you, you're going to have to learn operations and and commercialization and things like that. And if you came from finance, you ought to be learning about how science drives excellence uh, and future performance of the firm. Given your perspective, let's get to uh, U.S. healthcare. Mm-hmm. We know the wraps on U.S. healthcare, a lot of money, outcomes don't match the funds that are put in. Correct. Um, when you were at uh, Columbia, you debated the professor there about uh, the healthcare industry markets, and uh, you concluded that uh, they don't really understand behavior in terms of behavior economics, in terms of healthcare. Right. So give us your view on uh, tweet like, what is the problem with American healthcare? Well, I'll go back to simplicity. I like to be able to summarize something in one word. And my word for the U.S. healthcare system is hopeless. Um, and and I, I know that's a tough word to say, but we have created so many layers of complexity in this industry. And we forget that there's two factors that prevent us from being able to achieve lower costs. The first is we are capitalists by nature. So everybody in playing in the system wants to try to make money in some way. And the second is that there's a separation of powers in terms of healthcare between federal and state governments. So the idea that we can have universal healthcare, for example, is, is um, as we can see in other countries that works well in France and Canada and, and Japan in particular, um, you know, that's not going to be achievable here because of that separation of powers. And so I think that we have to take some very different approaches to ask some of those two-year-old questions of let's, let's step outside of the conventional structures that we've created and see how we can actually um, improve value, the triple aim, achieve Don Barrick's tri- triple aim goals of improve patient care, improve outcomes at lower cost, and improve population health. Um. In terms of the U.S. healthcare industry, uh, it's not real free market in the sense that it's all third-party pay. Correct. Whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, insurance companies, perhaps some large employers. But hospitals, for example, know their revenues depend not on the happiness of their patients, but on how well they negotiate with these third parties. Correct. And the proof of it, you might say, is that the lousiest motel in America wouldn't dare put you in a room with another guest, a sick guest with a curtain in between. Right. Which hospitals do routinely. Correct. Or give you robes that look like they've been washed by the Salvation Army 10,000 times. You don't know how to put the darn things on. No spa would do that. Right. So how do we get more patient control? You make the point that millennials are not going to put up with this kind of system. So AI is great. IT is great. The millennials are not are going to say, uh-uh, not for me. Correct. So, so where do you see that going? So I do think that that's going to be the millennials and, and next generers are going to drive to drive healthcare reform. And it's already starting. Uh, CMS used to, that's the Center for Medicaid Medicare Services, used to, and I say used to meaning up to last year, <laughs> um, only allow telehealth if you were too far geographically. You could get to a facility. You were in a remote area. And now they're seeing the wisdom of 
you know, it took me an hour to go two and a half miles this morning to get here. So, you know, they see the wisdom of, of you know, access, um, improving healthcare. So I think that millennials say, I want it, I want it now, and I want it on my mobile phone. Um, medical schools no longer teach doctors how to do physicals. They don't teach them to actually touch the patient unless they really have to. And so if the doctors aren't going to touch me and they're just going to talk to me and run some tests, what do I need to go in and see a doctor for? Why can't I do that telephonically and uh, or digitally? So I think that that's going to be a huge game changer. That has That could be a huge value driver. I'm thrilled, I hope, and I look forward to the way that Amazon will get into healthcare and how they could potentially reform that um, and create competition at, at a retail level as well. And then the other thing, and I'll ask the two-year-old question, um, and this was sort of the bane of a lot of professors' existence at Columbia when I went from my MPH, is why do we need hospitals? I mean, if we had a really good healthcare system, we actually should be able to close down most of the hospitals that we have and have specialty centers or have, you know, develop the deep expertise some, we some, need. Some make the point that uh, one of those unintended consequences was the Medicare, by having Part A, sort of preserved the hospital system that normally Correct. would have evolved, as you've described. Correct how it ultimately is going to evolve. Right. And then CMS tried to correct that by giving financial incentives based on patient satisfaction. And that was great, but when it, those incentives are 1% or 2% and aren't realized for at least two years, it's not real money. It's not a real market. <laughs> it's not Expedia. No, it's not working. It's not working. That gets to... Uh, seems that a lot of these healthcare systems, Singapore is an exception, is uh, all top-down. Take electronic records. Every laundromat had electronic, every gas station had electronic records 25 years ago. You did it or you didn't survive. And yet, there was no competitive advantage with this third-party system having electronic records. So then the government says, we'll impose it. And you know what happened. Instead of systems that met the needs of each specialty, you got this sort of one-size-fits-all that is everyone uh, pulling whatever hair they have left out. You see us moving away from this top-down approach, or truly it'll be a bottoms-up system like millennials seem to want? I think they're going to have to merge. I think they're going to have to merge because millennials are going to want access to their own records. They, they're going to want to know what data is being kept on them, I hope. Yes. Um, and that will force that to come together. But I would also argue we have two huge players right now in, in healthcare data, as you know, Epic and Cerner, and then a bunch of other players and, and um, individual hospital systems and things like that. And the thing is that they don't talk. They don't talk to each other. And so there's, there's a real lack of transparency across data as well. And, you know, you've never been more frustrated in your world then when you have a sick person or relative or yourself and you have to suddenly come up with records to take from one doctor to another and and it's just arcane. It's crazy. Um, and yet, you know, as you said, in a laundromat, you can get your data, your data's right there or Uber, you know. I mean, why can't we have Uber medicine? You know, I want to call up and all my data's there and HIPAA shouldn't be 
preventing us from getting access to their data. Rather, they should be enabling it. So I think that your point is well taken. And, um, yeah, we've got two very heavies, almost a monopolistic process. But I think that innovation is going to change a lot of that. You mentioned Uber, of course, Lyft, which just uh, blew away the old industry without permission. Yep. Do you think the rise of companies having these high deductible plans, which makes people very aware of what these things are being charged, plus on the bomb exchanges, again, high deductibles, even if they're subsidized, it's kind of a shock, is leading up to a Priceline kind of Expedia kind of a system where people uh, want this information in advance. Like you go to an auto dealer, you already know <laughs> what, what the local dealers are, are I offering. I hope so. I hope so. And I think, again, that millennial generation and younger is going to say, I'm going to shop this. I'm looking at reviews. I mean, how, today, if you have to go get a, a you know, a, a, a procedure done or see a specialist, the doctors or your primary care actually aren't allowed to recommend a doctor to you. you, you that, that would be uh, unethical. So you, you're you left to your own devices to figure out which doctor. I get so many calls, you can't believe it, you know. You know, who should I send my, you know, especially in the world of cancer. Where do I go for reliable and trusted referral? Well, I, guess what? I'm going to look at customer reviews of doctors. And those are very informative. And we're used to that now, you know, picking a hotel. And I'm, I'm not going to pick a hotel that has a two-star rating and people talk about bed lice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing is uh, pricing transparency. You've made the point in India, you can get a price of an MRI. Here, you have to almost be Sherlock Holmes to find out the price. Correct, correct. And that's that lack of transparency. I think that the current administration is trying to get a lot more transparency in terms of cost of health care. And I think we're really conflicted here. I mean, I look at and this is part of the story or rationalization. Why does a mass general charge ten thousand and a community MRI center charge, you know, a thousand or two thousand for an MRI? How can in India a couple hundred? <laughs> so, you know, how do we justify these prices? And yet you have to look at it's like any value added, you look at all the other great stuff that Mass General does, I'm just using them as an sure. example, Johns Hopkins, whatever, you know, the foundations, the research, the the innovation that they finance, et cetera, et cetera. And that's got to come from somewhere and it's going to come ultimately out of the patient's pocket. And so if you end up just looking at the cost of that MRI, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's going to break the, the, ability of some of those tertiary care centers that do a lot of research to be able to continue to support some of the great things that they do. Having said that, <laughs> having said that, there still needs to be transparency. There still needs to be transparency. And I, and I think, you know, America's the largest country in the world in terms of per capita philanthropy. And so, it, well, this you gets know, to, uh, if it's unbundled, yeah, there's um, a need. Correct. People will uh, support it. Correct, correct. So In fact, might support it more than trying to get it through correct. jacking up the price. And that's where I think Amazon will be so good. Can you imagine, you know, Amazon saying, you need an MRI, here's your centers, and here's how much they're going to ca- charge, and here's their ratings, and you, here's a ske- click and schedule, and you're done. And you choose. Uh, another villain, or perceived villain in the eyes of some, PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit managers. What are they? 
Well, PBMs are organizations that have been created to negotiate prices for on behalf of insurance companies and provider organizations with the pharmaceutical companies and other companies that supply goods to the um, pharmaceutical products, basically drugs, to the um, networks that are served by the insurers. So these are companies that will negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies to get the lowest price possible, which is what the insurance companies will pay for those drugs that are that are used. Um, but they'll also negotiate rebates. So, for example, if they sell, if they agree to take someone's diabetes product, they'll get a percentage from the manufacturer in the form of a rebate. Um, now, those rebates should go to the patients theoretically, but they really don't. They basically get captured by the systems and become profit to the PBMs and to the customers they serve. Um, so they become a middleman to negotiate better pricing, but we, we as consumers see very little benefit of that. Third party, very powerful, and they get their cut. Describe how do you see the PBMs. I'd be and the queen of be. hearts. I'd be the queen of hearts. I'd say off with their heads. I'd get rid of all the PBMs. We would save ourselves about 10% health care right off the top of the... We, we would... I think that there's so many other better ways to manage those price discussions, and we don't see the rebates, and we don't see, um, and it's just adding layers of cost to the system at the end of the day. So off with their heads. Where do you see healthcare in five to seven years in the U.S.? I see implanted chips. Uh, I see the continued I, I see the continued rise of telehealth, and I think I think we have to separate telehealth from telemedicine. So telemedicine would be Mayo monitoring, which they do right now. Mayo monitoring cardiovascular and other other metrics of anybody anywhere in the world, and especially with powered by five G, this is going to be fantastic. Um, and I think I think those innovations that we'll see becoming more popular five or seven years from now actually are already happening now if you look for it. And and uh, those models are certainly being tested a lot. Um, so I see, hugely, I see telehealth. Um, when you look at the, uh, you know, use a Tobin-Q ratio, you get outrageous numbers. <laughs> Unbelievable valuations for telehealth companies um, as long as they can secure their networks and uh, do a decent job marketing, they'll be, they'll be great. And then, um, and, uh, and I do see uh, continued consolidation of healthcare networks because they're just not going to be able to keep justifying bricks and mortar. And the rise of more specialty facilities, even though the hospitals are going to fight them tooth and nail. Correct, correct. Barry, thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you found this conversation with Barry Blavelt interesting and stimulating and perhaps disturbing. But now, our reads for the week. The first one is, this has nothing to do with impeachment. Trump is right. American toilets, faucets and showers and washing machines are terrible. Indeed they are. It's written by Jeffrey Tucker at AIER.org. That's AIER.org, Tucker, T-U-C-K-E-R. It's about the fact that regulations 
have made household items like the washing machine not work the way they used to. And it's really a pain in the neck and an unnecessary one. Now, another one. The counterproductive cruelties of occupational licensing. More and more jobs today require licenses. Are they really necessary? Jeff Jacoby at the Boston Globe, you can find his article, bostonglobe.com, talks about the silliness of this occupational licensing. He takes an example in Massachusetts. An emergency medical technician, EMT technician, very important, life-saving. Massachusetts requires 150 hours of education. However, a cosmetologist requires 1,000 hours of education, two full years of hands-on experience. All of this is not only foolish, but also hurts the economy. There's no rationale for it. And finally, a piece by Scott Gottlieb, that's G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B at WSJ.com. Dr. Gottlieb headed the Food and Drug Administration till recently and probably have made the most changes in that agency in decades. The piece is called Price Controls Would Stifle Biotech Innovation. The House of Representatives passed a bill that would put price controls on many notable drugs. But what it would do, he says, is damage the transformative life-saving medications that are being developed. That takes R&D money, and this bill would cut it off to the detriment of all of our health, including those members of Congress who want to pass this thing. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.